Welcome to the Design Matters podcast, where we discuss popular topics and new ideas in design. Our student hosts look to create insightful conversations with today's leaders of design in the built environment. My name is John Bazook. I'm an architecture student with the University of Calgary School of Architecture, Planning, and Landscape Architecture. I'm Emily Kang, a student with Landscape Architecture Program at the University of Calgary. This season, we are looking at how we can listen to understand, rather than listen to respond, with the intentions of emerging as more compassionate designers. How can we identify design biases and exclusions found in our built environment? We seek to learn from people related to each theme and to begin thinking about proposed possibilities for landing on definitive solutions. Our objective is to examine design decisions that have shaped our physical world. We are interested in bringing awareness to these decisions and to challenge current design standards. As future designers, we want to investigate how to listen. Today's episode asks the question, is universal design for everyone? What are some design biases and where are places that lack universal design? We have invited four guests to the show today to answer four questions that break down this heavy topic. We asked them to introduce themselves before sharing their thoughts. My name is Darby Young. I am the founder and principal of Level Playing Field. We're an accessibility consulting firm uh, based in Calgary, uh, but we work across Canada and down in the U.S. We started in 2015, and I have mild cerebral palsy. I'm also a former para-alpine ski racer, and sadly enough, I actually had a stroke six years ago, so there's certain syllables that I might stumble upon here uh, today, but I will definitely uh, give give my best shot at speaking clearly for you guys. Well, my name is Russell Copley. I am a Master's of Science Geography student at the University of Calgary, and I study how accessibility changes across space in our cities. Hi, everyone. My name is Tracy Liu. I am an architect and an associate at Dialogue uh, here in Calgary. I've been practicing architecture for the past 13 years or so. A lot of the projects that I've been involved with are public and community focused in nature. And I was most recently awarded the IRIS Prize, which is an um, uh, internal scholarship that Dialogue offers for your staff. It's a year-long scholarship that allows me to dig deeper into a research topic of my interest. And that would be in, to- in terms of talking about universal design. Hi, my name is Bushra Hashim. I am a 24-year-old Pakistani-Canadian based out of Calgary, Alberta currently. I have completed my Bachelor of Arts uh, in Urban Studies, my Master of Architecture, and I'm currently working on my thesis through the Master of Environmental Design at SAPL, looking at intellectual ableism within the built environment. The first question we asked is, what are some issues with universal design? Let's start with Darby's response. Well, some of the key issues that we have with universal design for starters is the biggest one is people when they think of universal design or accessibility, they think of the wheelchair. And a lot of the times we forget those with vision and those with hearing, but also those with invisible disabilities as well. So when we look at universal design, we got to make sure that we include everyone and build for everyone and consider how each individual might use the space instead of just building for a wheelchair per se. 
Right now, the words universal design and accessibility and barrier-free design are used interchangeably, even when they mean very different things. So the term barrier-free design was first used in the 1950s to describe the effort of removing physical barriers from the built environment for people with physical disabilities. So barrier-free design is not universal design because the former solely focuses on providing access to individuals with disabilities. It was the standards in the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, that was passed in the 1990s that executively addressed the issues of barrier-free design as it focuses on disability and accommodating people with disabilities in the physical environment. After the ADA was passed, the public buildings were retrofitted with ramps and other architectural features to provide physical access through barrier-free design as we know it. So, however, these changes were an expensive afterthought rather than a proactive design. So essentially, leaders in the field of architecture suggested a more cost-effective strategy, which is designing buildings from the beginning with flexible universal design principles in mind so that all users could have access. So universal design means planning to build physical learning and work environments so that they are usable by a wide range of people, regardless of age, size, or disability status. And the seven principles that is contingent on include equitable use, flexibility in use, simple and intuitive use, perceptible information, tolerance of error, low physical error, and appropriate size and space of approach. So basically, while universal design promotes access for individual disabilities, it also benefits others and theoretically should not solely be focusing on issues of accessibility. However, the primary issue then through universal design then becomes this idea of designing for all but designed for none. Basically, designers who try to cater to too many individuals end up shooting themselves in the foot. And so it may seem intuitive, but really it's not. It's the opposite. You wind up trying to please everyone in your target market. And ultimately, because of this, you please no one. So what universal design theoretically claims and practically applies has manifested very differently within the built environment and is essentially catered to a checklist or a homogenous group of people and is not able to meet different groups' individual needs in its quest towards inclusivity. What I see is I see two kind of conflicting aspects of universal design. I see the radical roots of universal design, and I see how it's been watered down or diluted through its like calls for like common sense or good design. When we mainstream ideas, we often see that they are changed to be more acceptable to the mainstream. And so, you know, you have Ronald Mace, who is a disabled architect who really, you know, brought this idea of universal design to the foreground. And then fast forward a couple of years and you have other architects, you know, saying that universal design is market driven rather than being rights, civil rights based. And this architect is Denise uh, Levine. And so when you take universal design and you take it out of its radical political roots as a disability first approach and perspective, then you turn it into a compliance, it benefits all of us, blah, blah, blah. And that doesn't really hit at the core of what it means to be universal. Question two, where are places that lack universal design and need improvement? This is a funny one because everything is really the best answer for you. Because even as we're building new spaces, like you've probably seen the new Calgary Public Library, that itself, as much as it's a brand new build, still isn't fully accessible. 
and has massive accessibility issues. So really, there is like accessibility across the board within Canada really isn't there. And even the conversation around the architects trying to see accessibility is a tough one because architects are trained to build code, but code is 30 years behind us and doesn't actually speak to myself who uses a scooter for long distances because my turning radius is a lot bigger than the manual chair and code is written from somebody in a manual chair and doesn't really speak to somebody with vision or hearing and doesn't speak to the invisible disabilities as well. Everywhere we look, accessibility and universal design is a major issue. If we're down in the States, it's a completely different ballgame because they have the Americans Disabilities Act, which has been around for 30 years this year, and where they have to take it seriously, or of course, like as true Americans, they sue. (laughs) There's always, you know, buildings are built better. We feel more inclusive. We feel warmer, welcomed than we do up in Canada. So it's the matter of trying to get people to build spaces that are fully warm and welcoming and actually consider all users and not just the TABS. TABS is an acronym for Temporarily Abled-Bodied. In terms of where the profession sits and how we embrace accessibility and universal design, this is something that we can immensely improve on, even from the premise of including them in the conversation in the first place. I think that in itself is like valuing that individual's input and bringing them to the table to the conversation as part of your design process is paramount. It's like, oh, we know so much because we're designers. But having somebody at the table to actually provide that input is invaluable. And I think it actually makes your design that much better. So when we are talking about places that lack universal design, you might even start to question the presence of design at all. I think universal design creates homogenous spaces. And this will always be the case until things are designed, not redesigned to accommodate the functional needs of our society. The thing is, the correlation between quality of life, for example, one's built environment and community participation for people affected by disability specifically is currently not widely understood at least not enough to change the status quo of design, and this is where we need improvement. Right now, examples of barriers include like professional cultures and stereotypes, you know, how we're being taught in schools, the academic accreditation, (laughs) inconsistent use of language, or different understandings of the language around accessibility, right, such as the barrier-free design and universal access. There's a lack of collaboration with people who experience these disabilities, and then there's just implicit and unconscious biases that result in ineffective experiences. The World Health Organization is now placing greater and greater importance to quality of life measures, where quality of life is defined as an individual's perception of their own position in life in the context of the culture and value systems in which they live. So within this metric, physical health, psychological health, level of independence, social relationships, environment, and spiritual domains are characterized as essential for happy living. So this is where my own personal research through my thesis comes in. So amongst all of these quality of life measures, the built environment plays a large role in the gratification of the rest, be it the psychological health or or social relationships. So there is no doubt in research that inclusion within the built environment is a large proponent of social participation and validation. 
just to feel included within your community, no matter your ability, age, gender, etc. So the questions then become is universal design, how we see it today, ensuring quality of life for all members of our society in an effective and contextualized manner? And are we ensuring all members of our society are accounted for in the least in the statistics that we draw user studies and demographic information from? And the answer is no. Question three, who is left out? What should be considered when designing for unexpected or unknown users? So this is actually exactly what my research is trying to answer. We have a massive data set with a roughly 13,000 data points collected by users who are trying to label businesses as either accessible, like fully accessible, partially accessible, and not accessible. And obviously, when you try to take something as large and subjective as disability and try to turn it into a three-point scale, you're going to lose a bit of nuance. But when we look at where are places that have more or less accessibility, we can look at it from a GI science perspective. Right now, where I'm at in my research is I don't actually have an answer for you yet, but we do have, you know, examples of what we can look for. And so, for example, we see in crowdsourcing that you tend to see more crowdsourced data points in areas that are higher on the socioeconomic ladder, right? When you have areas that have more crowdsourced data points, mainly because people tend to crowdsource their backyards, people tend to have more leisure or opportunity to access technology. But we see on the one hand that for people who have disabilities, you know, that is automatically putting you into a more precarious labor situation. And so the question of access to even the the technology to be in the data set that I'm working with, the idea is how representative is the data set of the people? And then how representative is the data set on the on our cities and those two questions are really really tricky to answer and it's why it's so difficult to to be like the northwest of calgary has um has more accessible places right like we we really need to make sure that we're able to answer the questions about representativeness of both the data set and representativeness of the crowdsourced buildings before we can even begin to answer, you know, where do we find access issues? So the year 2020 marked three decades of the Americans with Disabilities Act, so the ADA, and that's and how the ADA compliant design. So it was a necessary step to include a large disabled community that is equally used our space. However, the ADA's manifestation within the built environment has failed to consider a whole cohort of users whose realities are shaped by cognitive and intellectual disabilities. The ADA is often being limited to physical disabilities and how to address those. This is typically mobility, sight, and sound. You know, that may be through ramps, that may be through, you know, sound cues or wayfinding, signage, things like that. And that's just as a way of ticking that box off the checklist, you know, because all designs need to be ADA compliant now. And so we're kind of looking at some of these statistics. In 2017, approximately 22% of Canadians age 15 and older, so that's 6.2 million individuals, reported a disability. Those who are institutionalized or unable to self-report are uncounted in this vital statistic. So basically, people who have intellectual disabilities who are unable to self-report, they don't have a guardian who can self-report for them, they don't even exist. So 
Despite environment being one of the core domains that affect quality of life for people with intellectual disabilities, here too, the statistics do not include them because quality of life measures through the World Health Organization is, again, is a self-reporting kind of process. So the same way as Statistics Canada, like they're not counted. What we're actually looking at is blatant intellectual ableism within our built environment. You know, these people are like sensory or physical disabilities, emotional or behavioral challenges. They experience learning disabilities or reading disabilities. You know, these are people who are on the autism spectrum disorder. They have ADHD or they have Asperger's or, you know, anything that's kind of related to intellectual disabilities. A lot of these people are not counted. There's been basically a mutual agreement on the relative exclusion of these people. When you're talking about intellectual disability, you know, when compared to physical disabilities, the reasons for that is that there's basically a lack of coherent set of guidelines or body of research for people with intellectual disabilities. So how do we kind of approach through theory? How do we start to even design for them? There's also the general perception of the ADA as being costly and inhibitive of creativity. And then there's the lack of the ADA's consideration of neuroarchitecture and the impact of the built environment on the central nervous system. Design solutions that were kind of implemented that try to address some of the issues related to intellectual disabilities were often limited to wayfinding or just devaluing the importance of social inclusion within accommodation or just the built environment. Like all in all, today's static urban and architectural environments in tandem with marginalization through existing political and social structures continue to reinforce the physical and psychosocial isolation associated with intellectual disabilities. And these same structures are reflected in the built environment. Even the simple things of when you look at carpet, the carpet pile, the, the color, the pattern, if it's got black spots in it, like if it's got, you know, does it look like a black hole to somebody who's losing their vision loss? And is like, are they going to fall through it? Is, it? is it extremely thick that somebody in a manual chair has great difficulty rolling on it? because of the friction and the pattern and the way it's laid. All these things play key factors when it comes to designing spaces, not only, you know, the size of the bathrooms and stuff like that, but we also have to really look at the color contrasting, you know, for somebody who is starting to lose their vision, what does that look like for somebody with autism? And if we're using bright colors or we've got too many colors and somebody actually has to communicate with sign language, how does that technically affect their eyesight? You know, do, does somebody blend into the wall or do they not? You know, there's all these little unique situations. Then we have to look at it too from a sound thing. Has anybody ever thought about the Dyson hand dryers and how loud those are? And what those actually do to somebody with autism or somebody with an invisible disability, how they might react, you know, those are key things. It's not only what the building looks like or what's in it, but it's also the key function areas of what elements are provided within that space that can cause problems for for everyone, really. Question four, have we peaked with universal design requirements? What can we do more? I think 
we've definitely not peaked. Um, so basically what people with intellectual disabilities often experience is either a hyper or hyposensitivity to the sensorial environment around them, as in the visual touch, taste, smell, and audio. So environments like the Snoozeland room, which is kind of an example of this type of multi-sensory environment, um, have been made specifically to suit the needs of this group, but in really in an isolated manner from the everyday built environment, right? And this is the everyday built environment is what we're around, right? So we really need to be able to include some of these considerations towards that. So despite promising starts with the Snoozeland Room, little progress has been made since the 1970s, which is kind of when that was introduced. So there is thus an imminent need to craft design guidelines specific to newer architecture to rectify environmental sensory processing disorders associated with the neurotypical architecture of today. So my research is working to fill this gap and acknowledges that design equity and spatial engagement need to be addressed in broader ways to cover crucial cognition encounters and sensorial experiences of people with intellectual disabilities in our everyday spaces. Short answer, we've definitely not peaked. You know, design is an ongoing process. It's in conversation with itself, within feedback loops, et cetera. You kind of go back, you iterate, you reiterate. Speaking from my research within the realm of intellectual ableism in the built environment, there is a lot of work that still needs to be done. Holistic responsivity is a term that's coined by myself and my supervisor, Dr. Brian Sinclair to convey the notion that designers shoulder serious responsibility for creating built environments that are not static, like universal design, which I find that they're kind of focusing on more static, homogenous spaces, but, we're, but are responsive across a, the wide-ranging abilities of our users. You know, in short, and currently in the works of being further defined through my thesis, what we mean by responsive environments is the addition of a whole new layer of design considerations that revolve around sensorial experiences within our environments. So with the exponential proliferation of digital tools and construction innovations, key questions interrogate the extent to which users and environments can realize an ability to modify spaces quickly to suit their individual sensorial needs, and in turn feel included within their environment, build social relationships, and improve psychological and physical health. When I look at what would make my research easier, or that would make the ways that we are able to talk about, you know, accessibility and geography or design is building cities that are meant for rest, building cities that are meant for enjoyment, building cities where you're not able to call the cops on someone just for sitting in a plaza for longer than you would like them to. When I look at universal design, I'm looking at it more as a rhetorical framework rather than, you know, the, the actual codes and codifications of it, because ideally for my research, we would be able to see that, you know, ideally accessibility or non-accessibility would be randomly distributed around a city but it's becoming likely the more I do research into it and the more that I play with the data that perhaps they're actually clustered in areas that reflect socioeconomic realities that further marginalize people. Without the final data, without the final evidence, I can't say that for certain, but it's, it's looking increasingly likely looking at the other literature and looking at methods to analyze the data that I do have that we are going to need to have serious conversations about the relationship between the time capsule of the place or the time that you're building the structure in, but also like how it relates to the other buildings in the area, making sure that all boats are being raised. I think what we can do more is have architects that want to think outside the box, um, use the building code as bare minimum 
not as the standard and think about the individuals that are going to use the space and how you can make it warm and inviting for everyone instead of just being like, well, the client wants it to code. Well, okay, don't you want your building to last for the next 25 years? Like having, having those architects that aren't afraid to be like, hey, yes, this is code, but why don't we do this or this? Like this will, even these slight changes or going above and beyond the code slightly will make a difference in a building in a long run. So if we can have everybody sort of think, step out of the box, you know, go above and beyond, not just the code, but think about it from the aspect of, hey, if I'm 60, what would this look like to me? How would I maneuver through this space? You know, or if they don't really know, to reach out to people like myself and our firms and have these conversations, come to us, bring, bring projects or bring questions and be like, can you walk me through this? Because one, yes, we're a for-profit, but two, we're here to make the lives better for persons with disabilities. I would rather have a conversation with somebody for half an hour or an hour to make a building better than really keep my lights on, if that's the best way to put it. But we want to make sure that people feel warm and welcome. I don't want to have to go to a restaurant with a friend and have to rely on my friend to help me get in because there's stairs at the front door or the front door's not wide enough or go to the same old boring restaurant over and over and over that we've done for the last 15 years because we know I can get in, there's parking, I can go to the washroom, like all of that is fine and dandy, it's easy. I wanna be able to just be like, Hey, Emily, let's go for dinner tonight. What are you thinking? Chinese? What? Burgers? And just randomly go and end up at a restaurant and be like, hey, that's a good one. Let's go try it. Let's go there. You know, and know that, you know, I'm going to feel like I can get in and I can go to the washroom and I can enjoy myself. So I'm wondering if you could give us an example of either a project that you've done or perhaps in, in the middle of where you've applied this knowledge that you've gathered from your research? Most definitely. The project actually that is in the works and will be finished in 2023 is the Vivo for Healthier Generations. It's a recreation center up in the north, past the airport in the northwest, like in the Harvest Hills communities. And it's an expansion project. And that's the one that where the client is so forward thinking in terms of healthy living. But in and through that lens, we have been exploring inclusive design, multi-generational design, and also, of course, embracing in all of that universal design accessibility. Things that we are thinking about right off and are going to be incorporated are gender-neutral washrooms, right? That in itself is a, it's political in nature and how, what is, you know, privacy, wayfinding, all that kind of stuff is so important. But so, yeah, that's a project that we're really, that we are pushing the envelope in terms of what is out there, what considerations we're giving in terms of experience and the multiplicity of that experience, texture, how that applies for people that are non-visual cues for those uh, with different abilities.
the biggest takeaway for me was having these people that understand disabilities at the beginning of the design, having them be part of the design team at the very beginning to help us create a much more integrated design in our buildings, in our built environment, and enabling everyone that way to be part of the public and have their basic human dignity intact as they move across our society. Yeah, it was an interesting episode. I think that how the term accessibility is defined as an outdated term with the idea of it being, you know, 30 years old, it's like old, outdated piece of code. And how nowadays it's it's designed um, to sort of check a box where really it should be designed just as like a minimum. And us as designers and architects should really look further at making it just this minimum and going above and beyond of what uh, the code is getting us to do. You know, quality of life can always be better and be always we can always be more effective at designing for it. There never will sort of be a limit or a ceiling to it in itself. The data on this is interesting, right? The idea of, you know, self-reporting. So who can report on themselves? Who has the ability to report on on either personal issues that they have or to be able to kind of communicate effectively the mobility issues or sight issues or any other kind of impairment issues? I think that's that was really interesting. Today's episode was produced by John Bazook and Emily Kang in partnership with CJSW. Research was also done by John Bazook and Emily Kang. Music by Vikram Johal. Credits read by Emily Kang. Big thanks to all our guests for coming onto our podcast. A special thanks to Catherine Hamill for her mentorship this season. And of course, Vida Leung and the University of Calgary's School of Architecture, Planning, and Landscape Architecture for all their support. Coming up next, we ask the question of who is the right to paint over public murals in cities? Should public art be controlled and by who? Stay tuned. Thanks for listening today. And if you're looking for more information about our guest today and the Design Matters lecture series, you can head over to our website at sapl.ucalgary.ca.